Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bikini Podcast. This is episode number 37 and today we're with IFB Pro League Australia big boss, Doherty's gym owner and Arnold Classic Australia CEO, Tony Doherty. Tony, welcome to the show. It's good to be here and hello to everyone that's watching and uh, hello Troy, how are you doing? Really good, Tony, and I really appreciate you coming on. Out of all the people that have been on this podcast, you've probably been the most requested of all time. So to get started, I wanted to ask you, how is Tony Doherty? Well, first of all, that's nice to know that I've been uh, requested so much. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Man, I'm good. I'm, you know, look, I always just think that you get to make a choice every single day when you get up. And, you know, we can all be feeling sorry for ourselves at these times. Um, but I don't. So I'm doing really well, man. I, I think with the first year, the Arnold getting um, cancelled and then the first lockdown, I was flat for about a day. And I thought, what am I going to do? Am I going to be miserable? I'm going to let this define me or destroy me. And I worked then 91 days straight. There was not one day I didn't come into the gym renovating. I opened up again for two weeks. And then obviously we had to close down again. And this time I was flat for just a few hours. And I thought, you know, feeling sorry for yourself and you know, saying, poor me, is not going to achieve anything. So I got off my ass the very next day, came back and just started another project. So honestly, I'm, I'm, thank you, but I'm, I'm really good. For anyone that hasn't seen the images that you posted on the Doherty's Gym Instagram and your personal page, you've done some killer renovations to the gym. So what inspired you to do that? Well, a lot of it's stuff that I've always been inspired to do, but having like probably Australia's busiest gym that's open 24-7 and staffed all the time, I've never had an opportunity. So, you know, it started, it was funny, not funny, but my office got flooded and um, we pulled up and it was the, you know, the, the water department made a mistake with the underground pole anyway i come in one morning and the floor was all slushy you know and if you remember they used to have carpet tiles in here and i pulled them up and it was like that fake wood um like lino underneath i pulled that it was all moldy and shit so i've got a mate that does concrete polishing and he come in to do that and while he was doing i went out and pulled up a couple of mats in the leg room i thought i always thought you know why have gyms just got to have rubber floors because if you're full of machines and rubber coated weights what the hell? So I got him to do this little test patch. And then choo, everyone, everything went crazy. So we, we polished the, the, the leg room. You know, when I say polished it, um, if you look at a Dan Murphy's or a, a Woolworths or something, when they do those corporate sort of fit-outs, they do maybe a 1,500 grit. They sort of rate it. We went to 3,200. So it's like polished glass. It's like what you'd imagine a New York restaurant, a really funky New York restaurant to be polished like. So then when I did that, I had all the equipment out, obviously. And I thought, well, yeah, this leg room's always been so hot in summer and so cold in winter because we could never get up and insulate the roof. So then I thought, what a great opportunity now to get a, a scissor lift in and to insulate the whole place with really thick bats of insulation. So we did that. Then I'm like, uh, you know, all those pictures have been in the same places for years. I'll move all them. Then when I started to put the equipment back in, I thought, you know, maybe if we turned it around this way and that way, then in the big dumbbell room, you know, the upper body room, there was all that mesh over all those, um, it's got those sort of three-stage windows that go along. Mm -hmm. So I spent, I think in one week, it was 39 hours in a one-man scissor lift with an angle grinder, and I cut all the mesh down. And probably the first time in 50 years or something, those windows were cleaned. There was, you know, cobwebs like this thick. And the light, I mean, this gym's always had a reputation for great light, but that just changed the whole game. So I went back to the league room and I put uh, 60 new LED lights in there. Then I went out into the main room where you first walk into the gym 
and there was all mesh over the, the skylights. So I got the scissor lift back and went up and I cut all those down and cleaned all those ones. So everything, it wasn't really planned. Everyone said, what's your plan? I don't know, I don't know. how long have we got? So right up until the very last night before we opened, we were still, we were still doing stuff. And then, you know, when you spend that long, Troy, in solitude, you know, you get a lot of time to think without, for me, without being disturbed by, you know, just pretty much stayed off the internet through then. The phone wasn't ringing, obviously, because I dealt with all the, all the Arnold stuff and all the staff stuff and all the JobKeeper stuff and everything. So there's a lot of time to think. And for example, when I was in the upper body room, I thought, why is everything got to be like in lines that go uh, north-south? What if I turned everything kind of east-west? I think I could fit more equipment in. So I put 15 new pieces of equipment in to the gym and made space. You actually walk in and go, it's bigger. And that's just having time to think properly, you know? Also, I've been saying this for years, but most people when they open their gym, you know, you put your equipment down, you bolt it into the floor and you go, oh, I can never move that because it's got diner bolts. It's bolted to the floor, it's too hard. So back in the day, my first gym in Union Street, I never had any money. I mean, I really never had any money. So sometimes I'd just move the machines around so it looked like I was doing something. I'd move the pitches around, I'd take the squat racks from one side to the other. But we say, oh, you can't do that, it's bolted to the floor. I'd go, that's an angle grinder. And I'd fix it. So I had that attitude. I went like, found my roots again in a way, you know? So I went back and moved everything in, in different directions and had a really good think about the whole layout of the place. And it's like when you move into a house or a flat, you know, you don't just put your furniture down and go, I'm never going to move it. It has to be right the first time. But the arrogance of a gym owner is you don't want to say, oh, my designer screwed it up or I didn't think it out properly. So the ego gets involved and you never move shit. But when you move into your house, you do, right? You say, I'll just move the couch because it's easy. So I applied that, that kind of mindset to it. Then, um, you know me pretty well, but I became completely obsessed. So I was here <laughs> through the lockdown, like 12 to 15 hours every single day. And I was the first one to get here and the last one to leave. And I always say to people when they say, how do I get ahead in life? So easy. You'd be the first one to get there, the last one to leave and do all the shit that nobody else wants to do. So I applied that back onto me. I was like talking to my young self. Okay, come on, now you got a chance. So, um, you know, when people came back in and saw the gym and experienced, I mean, working out here has always been more of an experience than a workout. But when people came in and saw what we'd done, you know, the looks on their faces and the comments and uh, the enjoyment they got, that was enough uh, to know that I knew I got it right. I actually have a couple of clients that have never been there before because they've just started up in the industry, right? And they've trained at other gyms. I won't name what those gyms are. And they've said to me, Troy, I will never go back to those gyms again. And they signed up at yours because they thought it was amazing and they couldn't believe what you've done. Thanks, man. Well, I think it's more than... Look, anyone can go and buy a shit ton of equipment, you know? I've seen people in other countries with so much money, you know, more money than God, and they think you just go and buy 10 of everything and you're going to create a great gym. But a great gym has heart and soul and vibe, you know, that you can't really put into words. The atmosphere, I think, is what makes a gym really special. It's probably only, and you guys know I've travelled a lot, there's probably only you know, four or five gyms in the whole world where I've walked in and just gone, yeah. Yeah, you know, I'd love to. I'd love to be a member here because there's there's something special. Yeah, something so, like Bev, know, Bev Francis. Would you? Was that yeah. first thing that comes to mind? Yeah. 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 Um, Steve. Steve's gym. Um, the Bev Francis Powerhouse in Syosset in Long Island in New York is one of my favourite gyms in the world. It actually looks a lot like the old gym did here. In fact, the walls almost the same colour. We've got the pictures up everywhere, and everyone signed it all. And uh, 
you know, um, that's one of my favourite ones. So, yeah, so that was the aim. It was just rather than say, oh, you know, I think the first few days it was like, we're going to give this place a deep clean. So we've been scanning out, we polished all the treadmills and cleaned the fans and wiped down the equipment. That was sort of the mindset of everyone for the first few days. Then I'm like, this is going to go for three months. What? This stuff's going to get really dusty. Next thing I'm on a jackhammer, just coating the whole place in dust again. Yeah, we dug up floors. But I went, honestly, I went crazy. But my aim then was to raise the bar. And so I want to, talk, to turn this, and this may sound arrogant and I'm not trying to come across that way, but I'm like, I want to make this the best space in the world. I don't want to be like one of the good gyms in the world. I want to be like, what? People would be like, what the hell? What the fuck? What have we just walked into? What is this? So that's what I did. Yeah, well, I mean, the a lot of the, obviously, the pros that come through for the Arnold, they've been coming through for years, and even before the, you had the Arnold with the Australian Grand Prix, they pretty much came in and had that experience. So I think upgrading it from then. But every, what, every few years, you probably have sort of added something to the gym or, you know, the different twists that you've had, like the Charles Lotherwin photos, and you've always seemed to upgrade it, but I think this has probably really taken up to that next level. Yeah, I think the way I sum that up, people say, oh, you must be happy. I go, yeah, I'm happy, but I'm, I'm not satisfied. And I think you need to be never satisfied in life if you want to really achieve something great. So I'm, I'll tell you right now, this will never end. Mm-hmm. You know, as long as I'm breathing, this place will continue to get better. In fact, I've got more ideas again now. I'm like, oh, I should have done that. So now we've got this next lockdown. I'm doing even more things. I've just um, taken over a space in a nearby warehouse where I'm creating something else that no one's ever thought of. So um, I really like having this opportunity. See, as I said earlier, this can define you or destroy you. And it's really easy to sit home and go, oh, poor me, you know, I haven't got my personal training clients or my gym shot, I haven't got the income. Instead, if you could just sort of say to yourself, shit, I've got a minute now to do this stuff I never have time for. What? Because if, if, time's my, you know, time's my enemy. I've always got lots of ideas, but how do I do it all? So I'm, all of a sudden I'm like, I'm not time poor for once. So now I can get into this really creative flow and do the stuff I'm always like thinking about because I never stop thinking. And um, so, yeah, man, it's, it's, uh, it's just what you make it. We know who Tony Doherty is now, this passionate, this inspired person, just a go-getter and a person who never quits. Could you take us back to when you first opened up your first gym? And people may not have heard this story. I've heard the story. But could you tell us about who you were back then and how you become the person that you are today? Well, what... It was uh, 1994, I moved from country Victoria and Bendigo uh, to Melbourne. And I'd had a gym up there, but it was someone else's gym that I bought into and I blew it. I thought I knew everything. You know, um, I lost everything I had. I almost lost my parents' house because they, you know, um, innocently backed me in, the, in, in my great idea. And I was so shit at business. I was so bad at spending. I was so, uh, you know, I had no clue. Anyway, long story short, I knew it was time to get out of there. So... I moved to uh, Brunswick to just around the corner is uh, Union Street in 1994. And I had basically a truckload of broken equipment. Um, some of the black and white pictures are still up here today. And just this big dream. And, you know, I got offered like the Golds um, franchise, Powerhouse, Golds, Worlds, all those guys I knew from all the travels. Like, oh, you could be our Australian guy. I didn't have the money to buy a franchise or a license or anything. And I've been promoting shows for a little while. I thought, oh, Kind of people know who I am. I was just called Doherty's Gym because I can't afford anything else. So that's how Doherty's Gym started. And um, I had zero members, zero income, nothing. And I had like this old car. I, was, I had this old car I was doing up and I had this Jeep that I was driving around. 
I traded the old car for a lap pull down, and then you know, the power got cut off one month, and I, I sold the Jeep to pay the power bill. But what a lot of people don't know is that, that um, I didn't have anywhere to, to live. You know, I couldn't afford like an apartment or a flat or anything. So I had three possessions in the world. This is when I was uh, almost 30. I had three possessions in the world. I had a rice cooker, a vertical grill, and a couch. And no TV, nothing. So what I used to do at, at, in the morning, I'd sleep at the gym and I'd get up in the morning because we'd open at six. So I'd get up at like five, 5.30, have a shower, put on my gear. And I'd get out of there before the people lined up out the front. And I'd do a loop and I'd go up to McDonald's, used to open at 5.30. So I'd wait till they open, I'd get a coffee. I'd go to the news agent next door, put the, the newspaper under my arm, and I'd walk back to the front door just so it looked like I'd come from somewhere. And I'd say, oh, those people on the tram, you know, oh, they were out of control, they stink, or whatever. I'd just make up some story about the tram driver or whatever. And uh, good morning, everyone. I'd let them all in. Then I'd do the whole, all the shifts. So I'd work from six in the morning till, I remember it was nine or 10 at night that we'd close. So I'd stay for the whole day. I'd do all the shifts um, because I couldn't afford any staff. Then I'd wait for everybody to leave. So I'd have to go through the charade again because we had a gate on the front. So I'd lock the gate, you know, put all the padlocks in. Good night, everyone. I'd walk over through this car park and hide behind a tree, wait for all the guys to drive off and then let myself back in and crash. And I did that you know, seven days a week for almost a year um, because that's what it took to keep the doors open, you know, and it wasn't like sufferance. Some of the, you know, my happiest times of life were back then. And uh, so that's how I got started, man. I just had nothing. I just wouldn't quit. You know, the power would get cut off. The phone would get cut off. Uh, you know, I wouldn't be able to pay the rent. So, you know, work at nightclubs or I'd do collections. I'd, whatever it took to keep the doors open, I did back then. And, um, you know, nothing crazy or super illegal. But, you know, I really, really just, just man, just was survival. And I didn't, I didn't want to fail. You know, I didn't want to let my family down because they backed me early on. And I thought, you know what? If I stick this out, it'll come good. And then I got some some breaks along the way. You know, I um, started to train some champions. I, I teamed up with Sonny Schmidt, who was my best mate. He'd been living in, in California. And for those who don't know, he was like a top six Mr. Olympia, first Australian in the top six for a long, long time. And uh, he'd had some problems over in the US. So he moved back in with me. We got this little... Well, I stayed with his family, but they were very good to me. And even when I was on the couch, I'd go and stay with the Samoan family like one night a week just to get a good feed and stuff. But um, when he came back, we got this little house across the road from the gym. I remember it cost us 90 bucks a week to rent. And it was the ultimate bodybuilder house. We still had the vertical grill and the rice cooker and the couch, not much else. But all we did was train. So I trained with him for three Mr. Olympias. You know, I got way better than when I actually competed myself because I was training with an Olympia guy, you know, 12 months at a time. And then we started getting, you know, people come, because we, we were crazy trainers, you know, you know, I do a lot of quantity training and, we're doing, you know, that 30, 40, 50 sets of body part. And it came to the point where people would come over to watch us train and then, you know, they'd get a casual visit and then I started training some AFL players. And then things started to roll, you know. And this is what people have to understand. Nothing comes easy, but if you don't quit, you never know how close you might be, you know. And then we got some good publicity and then I trained a couple of AFL guys that had serious injuries that the, the doctors and the physios couldn't fix and got them playing their best football and, yeah, sort of got a bit of a reputation with that. And we started Muscle TV. Then things started to roll. And then um, 1998, April 1998, I found this building we're in now. And it was like three or four times the size of the little one. But I knew we'd done as much as we could there. I knew that if someone opened up next door across the road, they'd put me out of business. So that's when I went uh, 24 hours. And there was no 
24-hour gyms in Australia. They had been, but they'd gone back to normal hours. So I thought, I'll just go 24 hours. So we moved all the old equipment. And basically for that, that four years between 94 and 98, every single cent that I made, I just put back into equipment. So I'd get $2,000, I'd go buy a second-hand leg press. You know, we didn't have any cardio, so I'd buy a second-hand treadmill. And I just did that for years. That's all I did, nothing else. You know, no travel, no holidays, no, no, just, just buy equipment. So then by the time we moved into the gym we've got now, we only could afford the front half and the back half I rented out to a, um, a welder or something for the first year where the leg room is now. So a lot of people don't know where the boxing room is now, I rented that out to a printer. So I just did whatever I could to pay the rent. But the funny story is, you know, I remember the first night, the first day that we opened, and I'd been working every, everyone, all my mates and staff and anyone that had anything to do with me, come and help, come and help, spend that money. And uh, so we built the place basically with nothing. And the morning that I came to unlock the door, in fact, I had the key and I, I unlocked the door and I thought, well, if I keep this key, that's an excuse one day to say, we're not going to make it. We're going to be 24-7 every day of the year. We're never going to close. We're going to be staffed all the time. So I threw the keys away, literally. And I never shut the door again until the, uh, the pandemic hit this year. And in fact, I had to call a locksmith for, for three of the gyms the night before when I heard the Prime Minister say, all gyms close at 12 noon tomorrow. I'm like, locksmith, I need you tomorrow before he put his prices up. <laughs> yeah. I remember back in the day when you first shared with me your story about throwing away the key and it was like at Brunswick and there was a city and you also did it at Dandenong. And it's interesting that only a pandemic can half stop you, but not really. And you're really the only 24-hour gym, or I should say the only 24-hour gym in Australia. That Yeah, we're the, we're the only 24-hour gym. Um, there'd been one before, as I said, um, Underworld in the city had been 24-hour and then they'd gone back and then that ended up being Doherty's um, city gym. But yeah, everyone, and everyone said I was crazy. I went, so what do you mean 24-hour? Who's going to train Christmas Day? Who's going to train in the middle of the night? And I had always have this plan. So I'd be like, well, maybe thought about all the people that work in the airline industry or the nightclub industry or hospitality or the casino, waiters, strippers, bouncers, police, ambulance drivers. I could talk for another 10 minutes about people that work shift work. And they go, oh, you're right, you know? And from day one, I always thought, well, we could do our cleaning at night because there's nothing worse when in the gym in, in the morning and someone's coming around your feet with a vacuum cleaner. And um, because, you know, I got this idea because I saw... I went to Coles one night and they turned 24 hours. So I asked to speak to the manager. I said, why? And he said, because everyone's going to 7-Eleven when we're shut, paying twice as much for their goods. And he goes, and we're open all the time. You just don't know it. The lights are never put stop because we have a team called Night Fill. And they come and they stack all the shelves and they mop the floors and everything. So we figured we could put one girl on one register that stays overnight, save on our security bills, not worry about nothing, and, and, and get all those customers back from 7-Eleven. So my funny little brain's just gone, I'll just apply that to the gym scenario. We do all our cleaning at night. We'd still have casual visits. We'd still, still sell T-shirts and protein. By then, I'd start to build a brand. But I always try, I always wanted to build a brand. You know, like this Doherty's brand, um, it's been worn in, you know, all over the world by every champion in a number of sports, not just bodybuilding. And that was always, always the, the aim. And always the vision was not to build a, not to open a gym, but to build a brand. You, you mentioned promoting before. So how did you get into that? Because you said that you were promoting before you got into the gym game. Um, yeah, well, what happened? 
I, you know, I was a young bodybuilder, like most young bodybuilders. And I'd come down and do the shows. Um, Erskine Peakness Federation was called PWBI. It's got Rocco Pedersano ran it and had like all these books and, you know, stuff on training. And he had like this gym in Melbourne that everyone trained at. So I was competing in his shows and I always had that kind of brain and I always wanted to be some kind of promoter when I was, you know, in school. And I'd walk in, I'd look at all the people in the seats and I'd do the maths and I'd think, well, this is what it costs to put. So I always had this kind of mind. And then um, I decided to do a Mr. Bendigo. So I just did like an independent Mr. Bendigo, like in the, sometime in the mid 80s. And then um, the IFBB had started promoting in Victoria with this couple. Um, they had a gym, 401 Church Street, Richmond. And uh, they, they'd, I'm funny with names and numbers. Yeah, um, yeah. They, they'd uh, been promoting for a couple of years and they were getting really sick of it. You could see it. I remember it was at one of their shows one night <clears throat> and the lady kept, you know, sort of putting her foot in her mouth and stumbling on her words and she'd lost her passion. She was getting really shitty and everyone was booing her and heckling her, you know. At the end of the night, she grabs a microphone and throws it on the ground and said, if anybody wants to do this shit, you're all ungrateful. Somebody should call Paul Graham. I'm out. So Paul Graham was like the long-term president of the, the Federation back then. And I was like 20, I don't know, 20, 24 maybe. So I wrote a letter because obviously there's no um, internet or anything like this. I wrote a letter and he gave me an opportunity to go up and see him in Sydney to present my case. And I still remember I walked up into the airport and I said, oh, hi, I'm Tony Doherty. He goes, no, you're not. You're too young to be him and just kept walking. I'm like, well, that's weird. <laughs> I definitely am. So I had to chase him along because he thought I was an older guy because this letter I'd written. Anyway, long story short, he said, oh, I'll give you an opportunity. And, you know, um, things have changed a lot since then, but I'm for, forever grateful for that opportunity and for what he saw in me. At that, you know, for a young guy, he said, you go run um, Mr. Melbourne for a start. And then it was like in the May or June, July, whatever. And then um, the end of the year, 1988 it was, you can run your first Mr. Victoria. Basically, if you don't screw it up, I'll leave you in charge of Victoria and, you know, we'll do some th stuff together. So that's how it started. And then, you know, it was like a, a, a you know, loyal uh, promoter with them and had some great experiences for a lot of years until the split, what, three years ago or something. And by then I'd become very entrenched with the pro league. Obviously, um, you know, um, very close with Jim Mannion and doing the Australian pro, which had then become the third longest running pro show in the world after only the Olympia and the Arnold. And then on top of that, you know, I'd always wanted to be promoting Arnold Classic in Australia. So when I started my pro show, I thought one day I'm going to add an expo and one day I'm going to add all these other sports. I'm going to kind of make it like an Arnold US. And that way, if Arnold ever decides to go kind of global, I'll be the guy, he'll, he'll, I'll be the only choice, right? So that, a lot of people say, well, how'd that happen? So when in 2011, when he finished being governor, he said, um, you know, I'm going, to, I'm going to go take on the world now. Um, take the Arnold Classic one in each continent. So he first went to Europe, then he went to Brazil. And I remember he was in Brazil, and someone sent me, like it was a YouTube clip or a Facebook, whatever, some social media. It was like, hey, check out Arnold's um, speech in Brazil. And he goes, the next continent we're going to is going to be Australia. I'm like, fuck. So this stage now, I've been running my FitEx Expo for, I guess, four years, three, four years. And I built that, like, um, in a likeness to what an Arnold Sports Festival bears, and we had about 10 sports, and it was an expo, and all the big supplement companies were involved, and you know, I was competing. It was a pretty cool expo. Huh? It was a pretty cool expo, because I, I went there a few times. 
Yeah, it was good fun. You know, we started getting a lot of the influences, you know, like um, Robin Dunn and Lynn Bailey had come down and Chris Geth and all those guys and all the mates I'd made, you know, Phil Heath came, Craig Green came, they all came to support me and they stopped going to the other expos because of my, I guess, position in the pro league. So it was kind of like we had that market corner a little bit and then I put on this interview of Arnold, he said he wanted to be, uh, his next one would be Australia. I basically waited for the phone to ring and the phone rang. So I went over and met, you know, Bob Lorimer and the team and, and uh, the rest is history. You know, that was six years ago. It's cool how you've seen some things happening, you put things into place and you're like preparing for that opportunity and that opportunity comes, it's mine. Yeah. Yeah. And, and people say, well, what if it didn't happen? I go, well, what if, you know, I still got, I improved my skill set. I learned better marketing. I learned a whole lot about business. I learned how to be a successful expo guy, whether that happened or not. Exactly. You know, like, you know, people said, oh, don't open a 24-hour gym. What if it fails? Like, yeah, what if it doesn't fail? Like, you can have, it's, it's, a, it's a mindset. You know, and the other thing, Troy, is I've been doing interviews since I was a kid. You know, I, you know, I remember I interviewed Lou Ferrigno, like, in the really early 90s. I interviewed, you know, Dorian Yates. Oh, shit. After, a week after he won his first Olympia. I remember I interviewed Ronnie Coleman before anyone even knew who he was, before he'd even placed at the Olympia and so And then I start, I've interviewed all kinds of people from all kinds of sports. So I've always had this fascination of the mindset of a champion, of why if there's hundreds of athletes, pro bodybuilders, is there always just this one animal, this one person that stands out. And then, of course, when I got to interview Arnold, psychologically, all I wanted to do was understand the mindset of this man who could be an immigrant that came from Austria with nothing and became the best bodybuilder in history still to this day the best and highest paid actor, action movie star ever in Hollywood and then the governor of California. I'm like, this guy doesn't take no for an answer. Maybe I could learn a lot, not just from being part of this expo you know, as a business, but being in a position now to, to, to be close with him, to interview him, to watch him and to see the people he hangs around with and to learn. So this has just been a mission of learning for me. And, and uh, you know, Paul, so you, <laughs> my favourite one, oh, you got lucky? No. Yeah. There's no, there's no, there's no, you know what? It's luck if, you, if you're there. You put yourself in that position and then maybe someone comes in, but you put yourself no, in that position. I don't, I don't no gamble. Luck. I don't buy tax lotto tickets. I don't believe in luck at all. You know, I think the harder you work, the luckier you get, man. Simple exactly. With your, you mentioned sporting mindset. So if you could point your finger at one person that has impressed you the most out of anyone you've ever met in any sporting code, including bodybuilding, who would it be? Ooh, that's a, that's a, well, that's a, that's a hard question because I'm not, haven't prepared an answer for that, you know. There's been a few trials, it's not really just been one. You know, I've seen people who've just applied themselves. Like, so I worked at the Carlton Football Club for five years as a weights coach. And I saw athletes there that just had this mindset that were absolutely incredible. They had the skill, but they also had the will, you know. And when someone's got both of those things combined, it's a dangerous animal. You know, I've interviewed wrestlers. I've had spent some time, you know, with some of the guys that made it in the WWE, you know, like, you know, John Cena and Triple H and Goldberg and these guys have been really inspiring. I've worked with, with fighters, you know. So for, to narrow it down to one athlete, I, I really find that hard. You know, probably in bodybuilding, you know, apart from Arnold, I found uh, uh, Ronnie Coleman to have an incredible mindset because he... he kind of flew in the face of everything we're saying. He didn't plan to be a champion. He didn't believe he'd be Mr. Olympia. It was just his hobby and he was really good at it. 
And it took him like three wins before he kind of said, hey, maybe, maybe I'm good at it. You know, like, so I, I just find everyone fascinating. I think at a certain level, so, you know, I'm, I'm also starting some podcast stuff and one of them is going to be you know, this mindset of a champion thing where I interview some of these heroes and some of these people that I've stayed friends with over the years so that people that are watching and learning, is which I've done without really physically making notes, they're seeing the similarities between these champions. They all have these similarities. And a big part of it is self-belief and not quitting. You know, Phil Heath's another great guy to interview, you know, um, seven-time Mr. Olympia and, you know, not, not the most popular guy, but that was kind of why he won, because he didn't really care what anyone thought, because he knew that he could just outwork them and outthink them, outsmart them, you know. And, and Kai Green's probably one of the most fascinating people I've interviewed because he had a really shit upbringing. You know, he was basically thrown and kicked out in the street when he was a kid. And he was, you know, he went through like a lot of abuse, a lot of mental torment, you know, homelessness and, 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 and poverty that most people in our country could never even imagine. And instead of being a victim, he became a hero for all those busted people in the world. And he's one of my favourite people. Probably, I'd go as far as to say, maybe the most talented human I've ever met. Wow. Um, because he can paint, he can draw, he can sing, he can act. On top of that, he's an incredible bodybuilder. But he can, it's, it's, it's just amazing. He's got that voice and that presence. You know, so that's a long answer for who was your favourite interview because it's a- I've just... Man, I've been lucky enough to, to interview a lot of people. I could go on forever about that. We'll be here yeah, for hours. It's, it's a complex question, but um, you, you did a good job with that. Do one next time and I'll think about it a bit more. Yeah. With the Arnolds, I want to talk about this year. You know, obviously you went through some adversity with the expo being cancelled. You know, you did an amazing job first, of, first and foremost to put it on for the athletes. So could you tell us about how you got that job done and what were you thinking and what was the process of getting that whole well, thing organised? It was only... Um, if, if we had it been one week earlier, the Arnold would have gone ahead. So I went to Columbus, Ohio. So we'd done, I think, two or three of the Arnold qualifiers here. I went to Columbus, Ohio to, uh, to go to the expo over there. And I was in the lounge waiting to board the plane. Someone texted me and said, hey, well, send me a link. And it was a news service in Columbus, Ohio, where the, the mayor and the governor were saying, hey, we've cancelled the expo. Oh, hell. I saw that. What, what an idiot move, right? What an uh, idiot move from that dude, to, just to say that. Well, he did it without consulting with Bob and Jim Lorimer, which I thought was really, really cheap because, you know, they've, they've been the number one event in that city for 32 years, I think. Yeah. And, um, you know, they just didn't consult with them or work out what they could do. So while I was flying over, basically, they got them to agree that the sports could go ahead, but no people could be inside the expo halls. But the pro bodybuilding show on the Saturday night was allowed to go ahead. The prejudging and the other division on the Friday night with a very limited audience. But then on the Saturday night, they were allowed to open up if the tickets were pre-sold. And uh, I was going over there to MC it. So luckily, the one event I was going to MC was still on. So I got up, and, and it was a fantastic crowd. We were worried that everybody would have left Ohio and no one would be there. And the crazy thing is at that stage, there'd not been one case of the coronavirus in all of Ohio. Not one. And they cancelled the expo at a That's minute's amazing. notice. It's amazing. So I left there, come back here, and then I had the Melbourne and Sydney show on the next week, and then the Arnold would have been the next week. And every day it just started looking worse and worse. I'm like, oh shit. So I was in Sydney doing the show. It was a Sunday afternoon. So what's that? Six days before we would have opened, three days before we start setting up, 
yeah, for bumping. Yeah, and everyone was like, you know, putting a lot of pressure on me to, to cancel it. And I'm like, if I cancel, I can't get a refund on the venue. And then it cost over half a million dollars I'd paid up front. And I'm like, for me to be able to survive this and for our exhibitors to be able to survive it with me, I can't just quit and, and leave the ball. I've got to wait for them to make a call. So I still remember it was Sunday afternoon at four o'clock and I was emceeing the show in Sydney and my business partner there, Mark Gretsch, so I've been taking calls and texts all day while I'm on stage emceeing. So I keep handing him the microphone. So this time I said, I, I, I saw the number, I knew who it was, it was someone from the government. I said, Mark, take over, I went outside. And they said, at midnight tonight, Victoria's gonna go into a state of emergency. So your event's gonna be cancelled, you won't be able to have it. So, so I'd already written the thing. So the day before I'd actually cancelled the pro bodybuilding show, and I thought, well, we're just gonna go ahead with the local sports and this and that. That was the hardest thing is cancelling the pro show. And I had 77 pros from 19 different cities on their way to an airport when I made the call. And uh, it was at that Victoria show that you're at, you know, on the Saturday, the Victoria qualifier. And actually it broke me. It was the first time I've ever become emotional on stage because the pro bodybuilding show to me, that's been my life, you know. And to cancel that when I knew that people had left their country and left their families. For example, Big Rami, he called me on the Thursday night. He said, I'm on the last plane out of Kuwait where my wife and kids are. I have to fly to Dubai. When they shut the door of this plane, I can't go back for 30 days. But you got my visa, which was another story to like a month to get. Yeah, $1,000. And he said, I believe in you, Mr. Tony. He said, I get on the plane. And I woke up on the Friday morning knowing that, you know, the international athletes were going to have to go into quarantine, all this other crazy shit. And I called him. He goes, too late. I'm in Dubai. So he got stuck there for 30 days because he believed in me. That, that, that was hard, man. Like for me, you guys know. And so when I cancelled the, the pro bodybuilding and, and all the local athletes I knew had prepared so hard for it, everyone, I mean, it was, it was heartbreaking. Every, every single person had a story. And some of them thought it was on me. You know, I had some of the physique pros from New York and LA going, you pulled the pin on it, you couldn't have told us sooner. I'm like, man, I hung out as long as I could because I thought I could pull it off. And we only missed by a week. So then go forward to the Sunday afternoon. I got the message from the government. I actually sat down that night. No, I sat on stage after we closed the venue and did a, a public um, statement ready to edit and send out. We announced it the next day. Whew, and then I started thinking, well, why? And I, no, I didn't say at any stage we've cancelled the Arnold Amateur Pro Qualifier. I just said the Expo's been cancelled. It's going to affect a lot of sports. You know, what's this space? So some people took that as a... He's cancelled the show. I'm like, just read the words very carefully because I knew now I've got a plan. So then that day in Sydney, I was texting the venue managers. I booked about, by Monday morning, I booked three different venues to do the, um, to do the show at, you know, the Kingston Arts Centre. Um, I was still trying to get the plenary where we have the, um, because even though we couldn't have an expo, we could still have, at that stage, like 500 people or 1,000 people in a room. Yeah. And every day, it shrunk and shrunk. And on the Tuesday, Kingston Arts called me and said, we're closing our doors. You can't do the show here. Oh, shit. Then all the other venues closed. Then the convention centre padlocked their doors for the first time in 25 years. I'm like, I made a promise to all of our Australian athletes. And by then we've had, what was it, like in those five qualifiers, like nearly 700 athletes had competed to, to qualify in this show. And we had like, you know, I think 300 or something like that had already entered. And I thought... Wow. And it started tightening up. I thought, you know what? I'll get a warehouse. And I'll put some lights up in a warehouse or a 
an empty gym or anything. I was working with Nick at Derriman, who was going to give me one of his empty rooms, but we would have had to set up a whole stage and deeply cleanse it and this and that. Then the guy that I hire all the big screens from for, um, for the Arnold Classic, where we have all the giant mega, mega screens, he's like, hey, um, I've just been setting up this demo kind of stage to show everyone how I can do a backdrop with screens. Do you want to come by? So I'm like, yeah, man, it sounds like an idea. So I drove like from out in the western suburbs out to Bray, Brayside, where it was, and my man there was just unbelievable. So he set it up and I said, wow, we can do this. And this is, by now, it's, I guess, Wednesday, it was either the Wednesday or the Thursday. And I said, all right, we're going to do two shows, one Saturday, one Sunday. We're going to get this place ready. Then they said, you can only have 100 people in one room. So then I read the legislation and I said, as long as the room's divided by a temporary or permanent structure, it's a separate room. So I'm like, okay, we can have 100 competitors on one side and just 100 in the audience, including the judges, the helpers, the stages, the um, expediters, the music guys, and the video guys, everything. We can live stream. So this is evolving every hour, right? So it was Wuha Productions is the name of the place. So they did an incredible job. In 72 hours, you saw it, man, they built that venue specifically with theatre curtains, with stage lighting, with the best backdrop you've ever seen. And we live streamed it. And then the thing was the competitors couldn't walk from one side of the curtain to the other. And I had some people say, well, that's a bit irresponsible. You know, you can spread the virus. I said, I'm following the government guidelines to the very letter. You Absolutely, want to see you did. Dad, girlfriend, husband, partner, even the coaches. I'm like, you have to go out into the street, meet with your coach, to say hi, then he comes back into the audience. You go back yeah. into the backstage. So what I did, mate, was I found a way forward, no matter what. And if they had said only 50 people, I would have found another way forward. So what I did, I split it so that all the women's divisions were on the Saturday and all the men's were on the Sunday. So, of course, I'm checking all the updates. And halfway through Saturday, it was like, the state's going into a new lockdown at midnight tonight. I'm like, oh, I should have done it all in one day. I've, I've really fucked it up. But fortunately, we're still able to do what we did on Sunday. And Sunday night, it went into total lockdown. So I pulled it off. You know, we gave out the pro cards we promised. And to me, that was, well, one, if I didn't do it, I would have been miserable, man, because I'd cancelled the art. I'd, I'd lost, you know, you know how much, but hundreds of mm. thousands of followers. A year's work for me and all of my staff, you know, you know more than $600,000 losses, even more. Anyway, and I would have been moping around. I mean, I drove past the convention centre, the empty convention centre, when we meant to do the Arnold on my way to do this. I'm like, oh, I don't even want to look at it. So for me, it was, it was a saving grace that I had a project, a needed project. But the, the, I guess the bummer was I got home on the Sunday night. I thought, hey, we did it. You know, we gave out all the pro cards. Jake got to come and guest pose, which I was really happy for because he, he looked incredible. It was meant to be his pro day, debut. So we did as much as we could for as many people as we could, you know. I know you trained a couple of the girls that won their pro cards in bikini and so on. And for me, that, that was just a great moment. And we pulled it off in, in not a shitty venue. But honestly, I had a truck, I had a semi-trailer booked to put in the car park at the gym and a lighting rig ready to put up outside. And we're going to do it on a Sunday in the car park if I had to. There was no, yeah. Of course, say to me all the time, if you've got a plan B, I'm going A, B, C. They've got the whole alphabet. Like I'd thought, yeah. I just kept thinking beyond anything anyone could imagine. So what we came up with, I thought was pretty damn good for pretty 72 damn good. hours notice. And it was the last NPC or IFBB Pro League show um, before the shutdown worldwide. So Jim Madden, my big boss, and our president in Pittsburgh was so happy that I pulled it off. He goes, you know, no one in the world could have, one, had the balls or two, just kept fighting like you did for the sport. So he was wrapped. The athletes, 
I know what it meant to them and I'm still getting messages from them. So I felt great about it. Then I got home on the Sunday night and I'm like, shit, I was going to have a cigar and a few drinks on the balcony and just soak up the fact that, you know, we didn't do the armor, but we pulled this off. Honestly, it was like eight o'clock. One of my mates texted and goes, you should turn on the TV. So here I am just starting to relax, turn on the TV and this, our prime minister saying, 12 noon tomorrow, all gyms close. Oh, you couldn't even just give me one, <laughs> one night to relax and enjoy the moment. So then the next day I had to close all the gyms. So, you know, this is, this is uh, what you go through in business as part of it. Oh, I've been up cutting beams uh, with a saw. In fact, I had to change shirts because I was covered in sawdust, sort of dust in my eyes, nose, ears, everything. Yeah. Did you ever consider having the Arnold actually in Doherty's gym? In the car park, yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. at that stage, they said you couldn't have you know, more than like so many people inside, but outside you could have up to, like, I think it was like 500. I'm like, I was doing the car park, and I'd actually gone and saw the guy that's got the furniture place across the road about renting his car park, and he had two containers there. And then a forklift book to put the two containers, and I'm like, we could put a ladder, like a, a staircase at each end, and we do the show on top of shipping containers. Yeah. And then, of course, all the dudes, you can't do that. What if someone falls off? So then I'd book the semi-trailer to come and put it one into the car park. I was going to say, entry's free, come and watch. And just that way the, the trailer of the semi would have been the stage. And had music booked, had lights, everything. Yeah. So, yes, I did consider that, Troy. I, 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 there's no way that once I said, this is going ahead no matter what. And you might remember, I mean, so why isn't he telling us his address? I'm like, well, one, because someone will try and spoil it or some do good or someone exactly. that doesn't want to see us succeed. Mm. Someone who could not have pulled off what I stuck at will try and mess it up or whatever. So to get in front of that, I went to the local police out there. I called the government. I, I ticked off every single box. So um, we invited the, the local police out at Brace. Come down and check out what we're doing, please. Count numbers. Sit down in the front. Do whatever you want. I called the health department. I called the Victorian government. So I thought, if anyone accuses us of being irresponsible, here's all the literature. Here's us doing every single thing we can to keep our competitors safe, our audience safe, and our, athlete, our, our athletes, our audience, our staff safe. So you might remember, we had the chairs, only one chair in every four square metres. Yep. So I lost more money doing that than I could have. But when, you know, when you've lost that much money in one weekend and worked a year for it, there's a lot to be redeemed by doing the right thing by, by your Australians, you know, by our athletes, the people that you, know, you help and that I try to inspire and, and promote. So for me, it was just it was one of the coolest things we ever pulled off because it was impossible, trust me. Even people really close to me going, you know what, you've got to know when to quit. I go, no, no. Is that, I, I, when I said it's going ahead, I, says, I knew that once I said that there was no stopping. And the point with that was, um, you know, a lot of these guys have put six months of their life and they'd already flown here, you know, and then some made an excuse to go, oh, well, you know, you know, I had someone wanted a refund because, um, because it wasn't the venue that we promised. And, and, you know, we were told it was going to be at the Arnold in the expo. So, you know, we want travel costs. I'm like, are you kidding? Yeah. Whoever said oh, that, yeah. like, come on, man, seriously. Like, <laughs> well, you know, it was only it was the one, honestly, it was yeah. the one. There's always a bad, there's always one bad egg that doesn't think things doesn't through. Matter. Most people were very, very grateful for what we pulled off. But Absolutely. the point was, you know, we did it, we did it against the odds. You know, we gave out the pro cards. The lighting there was insane. There was a great look. Those LEDs, Tony, like I did not expect as a spectator or as a coach to, to like rock up and for it to be like that. I just did not expect it at all. 
<laughs> That's why I kept playing it down, going, look, it's not going to be that great. There was 210 LED screens bolted together for the backdrop. So we went all out, you know, and uh, Arosh, you know, the guy that, that, that had the production place, you know, credit him, mate, he's as mad as I am, maybe worse, because yeah. he kept raising the bar. Maybe we could do this. He goes, maybe we can do that. And I'm like, well, if you're going to go there, why don't we do it? So we just kept raising the bar on each other. And it was honestly, like none of those guys slept for two days getting it ready. We didn't for the whole weekend. Yeah. But you know, this is sometimes what it takes, um, I guess, what separates you from being like everyone else. Because uh, I needed it that weekend. Our athletes needed it. Our sport needed it. Our state needed it, you know. And uh, and then, as I said, the next day we had to close the gym. So it gave me a little, you know, a little bit of just a smile on the way out, if you like. It was, it was pretty damn cool. I have to give credit where it's due and you are one relentless person, Tony. So I tell you that. And I've always known that and a lot of people are probably getting some really cool insights right now as to who you are as a person because this is some hardcore stuff, not only to push through everything, but to push through it really well. Have you ever considered, like when we do go back to normal and we're assuming that normal sometime soon in the very near future, would you have similar production quality or have you considered similar production quality in terms of the big LEDs at future Pro League events? Yeah, yeah, I've already looked into that. Absolutely, yes. Um, yes, so um, depending what we do with the Nationals, which I'm sure is one of the questions you've got, mm-hmm. um, expect a production like nothing. If we do it in Melbourne, just expect production like you've never seen before. Awesome. Could you take us through the decision-making process of cancelling the state shows and then from that mindset and then we're going to do Nationals only for this year? Well, for those that don't know, just yesterday I announced that we're going to um, actually cancel each of the state qualifiers. There's a number of reasons. One, as Victorians, we can't travel to any other state at the moment. And that may be relaxed by then, but what if it's not? And then we've had people enter, diet, and buy tickets for their family, you know, put down deposits with each, because I've got to, when I got to take over the Pro League, I wanted to give everyone else an opportunity like I had. So I appointed one partner in each state. So it meant all those partners have to risk everything, you know, to put the money up to do the show. And then if, if, if it's a qualifier and I can't go there to MC it, I can't take our head judge and our Victorian panel, you know, that we need to take, and I can't take my production team, I can't take my DJ, and you coaches can't go to help your athletes, what is it? We just say, oh, good luck running the show because you know, some of the other states don't have the experience that we have to run shows successfully. And they're learning and they're great guys. And I love them dearly, but... I don't want to put them under that kind of pressure and I don't want to risk our sport going backwards. So we had a conference call, a Zoom call with all the partners. Yeah, I mean, I'm just an open book. I'll tell you how it evolved. We're all talking about maybe this and maybe that. And I said, you know, maybe, maybe the wisest and the best thing we can do is to take a hit right now to call it, because it's still 14 weeks out, and to say to everyone, you know, rather than, see, I think under this pro league thing that's been happening, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think our sport's gone forward enormously, Troy. Every single, Every single season, we've gone forward. You know, we've learned some stuff along the way, but we've definitely gone forward as a sport. And I think if that had been shit, and the stage shows may have, because this might get worse, this whole viral thing. If that had been shit, or say in South Australia or Perth, we only get you know, 20 competitors, or Queensland, we only get... 50 instead of 200 or whatever, then you've got to say, that's a big step backwards, you know, and, and I'm not willing to do that. I said to the partners, once we all talked it out, they said, what do you want to do, boss? So I said, I think what we should do is make a call right now, make an announcement this week, 
And of course, people have been asking me for weeks and weeks what's going on, but I'm like, no one knows what's going on. Let's just watch the situation. So then when we went into a second lockdown here, and then they said, well, Victorians can't go to South Australia, Queensland, WA, uh, or now New South Wales either, that could really go upside down, but anyone can come to Victoria. So I said, what about this? A lot of people have already started preparing for it. Perhaps we should just do the nationals and say, look, instead of you having to qualify through a state show, which you do, this year I'll relax that rule and it's just open to everyone that can either get here or Queensland. Now, people say, well, why haven't you announced which state? Well, I, honestly, I'd love to do it in Queensland because that's what we originally wanted to do. But we don't know if we're going to be able to travel there. So in about four weeks' time, I think I'll have you know, a much better idea of that. So what I've done, I've booked a venue in Melbourne and I've booked a venue um, in Queensland for the whole weekend for the two-day show. That's cool. And how I'm going to do it to manage the numbers is um, at either venue. So in the morning, the Saturday morning, we might do, for example, all the women's classes like figure, fitness, physique, this sort of stuff. Then, then clear the audience, clear the backstage. Then we do the bikini in the afternoon as a separate show. Then the Sunday morning, we do all the men's physique, classic physique, this kind of thing. And then in the afternoon, we do the men's bodybuilding, um, you know, weight classes and juniors and masters and all this sort of thing. And that way we can still limit. So for example, let's say in the venue in Melbourne where I can get 800 in there. Let's say I'm only allowed one in four. If I get 200 at each session, that's 800 for the weekend, which will at least break even. I don't, it's not about making money. It's, a, it's about um, not losing a shit ton of money again. And, yeah. and also, you know, this is, for the people that have just dreamt about this for years, it's like the Arnold thing. I said I was going to do it. I'm going to do it. So I'm going to find a way to do the nationals. And right now, if it is as it is right now, anyone can travel to Victoria. Yeah. Okay, you may have to isolate when you go home for two weeks. But I know the mindset of an athlete. If you're serious, and you know, I was a serious athlete for a long time. If that was the condition of me going for my pro card, I'd be like, that works. That means I can go do the show, then I guess go home and sit there and eat for two weeks. <laughs> I'm in. So this, this is the worst case scenario, is that someone will have to come from another state and maybe self-isolate. But I still think that's better than cancelling the whole year. Yeah. Now, having said that, and I'll say this straight to anyone watching, you know, if things get worse, and we go to stage four in Victoria, stage four in New Zealand, stage four, you know, like the lockdowns in New Zealand and in Italy and Spain were, we can't leave your house, you can't leave your suburb, um, then we might need to make a harder call on it. But as long as things are as they are at the moment, I think we've made the safest judgment call that we can and still kept it alive for everyone. So that, that's, that's my thought process. Yeah, I completely agree with that. So what do you, so I've got a couple of questions here. I completely agree with that logic. So. Would you consider pushing the dates back from October to say November if there are crazy restrictions still going on? Um, we, we, we've looked at it, but I think when I made the announcement the other day, that was the time to call the dates. Yeah. So if we keep moving it and, and postponing it, because you can only do that once. And for example, a couple of expos and a few shows have now um, rescheduled three times. Mm, that's a bit that's too much. Me, yeah, it's, yeah, that's, I, I agree. Now, if we go to November, okay. Um, the venues that we want are not available at the moment. Now, they may become available because some other stuff will have to cancel. But you've got to remember, all these events that have been cancelled are all trying now to get into September, October, November. Right. So the biggest thing, and that's why, like with the partners, our first call was say, let's move everything into November, all the five qualifiers and the nationals to November. But we couldn't get venues to match. Mm. It's, like, we're booking venues two years ahead. Yeah, I'm booking the convention centre three and four years ahead. So it just, it, there's no way it could have worked. And we, that, that's what we wanted to do was move everything to November. Then 
I thought, well, the difference between the very end of October and maybe the start of November, it's no difference, a week or two. If we go to the end of November, well, that's nearly Christmas. And then we're, we're only 12 weeks, 15 weeks away from the Arnold. So it might affect that greatly or who might just stay in shape and say, oh, I'll just go straight through. I don't know. But someone, you know, in a, in a position of leadership, sometimes you just got to make a call and you don't know if it's right or wrong. And, you know, I might be wrong. But my feeling was October, November, same shit. Yep. Is there a deadline where you think you make the call for the Nationals where you're like, yep. We're in sort of restrictions. Not sure. This is the absolute uh, yeah, last I don't day. Want to, obviously, I don't want to put a number on it because everything's changing so fast. I mean, you would have got a text last night of everyone, the scaremongers sending um, around the text. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, Victoria's going to stage four. The army's going to be patrolling the streets. You can't leave your suburb, blah, blah, blah. Um, and it was like that in Italy for two months. But they had, you know, they were getting a thousand deaths a day. Mm. Right? So this is, we're, we're not in that situation. Mm. However, we don't know, man, what, what's going to happen. This is, we're in really, really uncharted territory. So I'd like to say, I'd like to make a call no more than, I'd say, 10, nine, 10 weeks before the show, the show date. If things are just going downhill like this and there's no way people can travel um, to Victoria, for example, then we can't do it because it can't just be for Victorians. That's not yeah, fair. I think that's reasonable. So that, what will affect my final decision will be that if travel is completely restricted between the states, then there's no nationals because then that's just, you know, all the Victorians or you know, if it's a Queens, they'd be rubbing their hands together and saying, ooh, but that's, that's not what a nationals or a pro qualifier is. So um, I'm, I'm working on that. And one of the other questions I've had and from a couple of the girls that you train sure. is, are we still going to go ahead with the Bikini Pro? Mm. Because we're going to do that at the Nationals this year. I'll try and have an answer by the end of the week. And I'm not trying to fob it off, but I'm just talking to head office in Pittsburgh at the moment, just explaining the situation here and seeing, you know, that that's all going to go ahead. But I'd say if, if I had to put a number on it, I'd say it's 75%. Yeah, I mean, a lot I'm of the... Trying my, I'm trying my guts out. Yeah, like, no, no, everyone, like, if, that's what I tell everyone. I said, Tony's not a quitter. So if, he, if there's a way, Tony's going to find a way. Um, yeah, yeah. 2000... I mean, the good thing about that is that, that there won't be any internationals at it. And I wouldn't do it for any other class except for bikini, maybe men's physique, because we've got enough athletes here who really do to have a great oh, show. Oh, we do. We've got yeah. plenty of athletes. Quality and quantity. Um, and uh, so I'm like, well, that's pretty cool, because then... You know, it gives one of our girls a chance to qualify for the Olympia. And girls, pro girls, if you're watching, I know a lot of you watch this podcast, you know, we need you to do this show. If I'm going to put it on, we want everyone there, every single one of you all. And then say, oh, it's not enough notice. Was it 14, 16 weeks? Yeah. If you're a pro and you're not within even 10 weeks of contest shape, we want to have a good, hard look at yourself. Yeah, I completely agree yeah. with that. Absolutely agree with that because it's. A, never be that, you, I'll say it straight. You should never be that fat if you're a pro. Sorry. Yeah, and and yeah, and you got amateurs that are preparing for this show. Like, and to be fair to the amateurs, they're not sure if it's going forward anyway. So if you're a professional, you're a level above that. You should be committed to this as this is your profession. Yeah. This is what you want to do. You want to go to the Olympia. You're a role model. What, where's your work ethic at? Now the good thing about that is, is that if I do the, um, and this is what we're going to do when, you know, when everything was when the world was a normal place, was that I was going to do the bikini amateur on the Saturday and whoever turned pro could go in the pro show on the Saturday night. And we used to do that with the Australian pro back in the day, you know, whoever yeah, was the, there. Yeah, the FedEx days. Go on stage and, uh, you know, against the pros. So that was, uh, so look, guys, believe me, I, I work, you know, more behind the scenes than I'd ever explain or want anyone to understand with all this stuff. And, you know, we're really, 
we're really in it for you and we hope that we can make this happen and I just promise you I'll give it everything I've got to, to pull it off and, and also to communicate that as quickly as we can. Moving forward to 2021, I had a few people asking similar questions on season A and I know it's probably the same thing. Obviously, we don't know what's happening right now and there's probably a lot of people that maybe don't understand the level of planning that's involved in such a big event like the Arnold, but how is your preparations going for the 2021 Arnolds? Uh, difficult. Like, to be honest, I don't know what it is right now because if there's no international travel, and right now there's no way we're going to be able to bring people into Australia in March without two weeks quarantine, unless they find a vaccine, which I think is about 18 months away from as much as I've read. So if there's no Arnold coming and no pros coming, well, the, the men's pro show is cooked because how can I sell tickets to the plenary with the best bodybuilders in the world if I don't have, you know, the people they expect, you know, Rowley or Dexter or, mm. you know, Brandon Curry, these, these top champions, because that's what really does sell the big tickets. Yeah. Um, so it will go ahead. I'll say this. It just, I may have to just reshape it a little bit, like I did with National. So, you know, instead of doing 16 bays at the exhibition center, I might just do 10 bays. Instead of having 50 sports, we might just have 20 sports. Instead of having 20,000 people in at once, maybe we can only have 10,000. I don't know. Because an expo, see, the funny thing and the hard thing for us as promoters to, is an expo is about excitement. It's about having, having selfie with an influencer or seeing the people that you admire or going out and getting a, a selfie or a picture with someone or getting a diet or a little hug or whatever. And the world's changing. Right? We're not going to be able to do that for a while. So I, I am ahead of that. I'm, I'm not, not a stupid person. I'm thinking, okay, if the situation is like it's now, how do I make an expo successful in this climate? Or if the climate, I think by March, but this is only what I think, it doesn't really matter. But if things are better than they are now, I'll make it work. Yeah. And I'll still do some proactive. I'll still have a pro qualifier. I would probably still do men's physique and bikini pro at least. Yes. You know, and then if I can bring internationals in, of course I'll go ahead full steam. But there's no way anyone prepping for a pro men's open, for example, is going to come in here two weeks early and sit in a hotel with uh, hotel food and no weights. Yeah. Because you can't I'm, leave your room. I'm with you on that you one. Know? And there's no way that Arnold, for example, would be able to come in and sit in the hotel for two weeks. Can you imagine that? Yeah. So no. it might be that I've got to use another celebrity or restructure it for a year. So I've got a lot of things. See, for those that don't know me, I never stop thinking. I think when I'm sleeping, I think when I'm thinking, I think when I'm working, like, I think through every situation possible. And I've, 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 believe me, I've put a lot of thought into this. I just don't want to say too much to you. Yeah. Everyone asking um, questions about 2021, season A and everything, just put yourselves in our shoes for a minute. We don't want to just feed you some kind of throwaway shit. You know, and a lot of, um, it's not bagging anyone, but a lot of federations, a lot of promoters um, I've watched, even with this season B, just say it for the sake of saying it. That's one thing you know with me I don't do. Mm. You know, I think carefully before I speak. And I'm not just going to give some throwaway answer about all the the, you know, the pro qualifiers and the Arnold for next year because I don't know. Nobody knows. The Premier and the Prime Minister don't know. So who am I? You know? But what I can say is the venues are all booked, the deposits are paid, and it's full steam ahead unless something changes that stops me from doing it. Yeah. Well, what are the dates that you've got locked in for that, for the venue? Well, the Arnold's always the thir third Saturday of March. Yeah, that's what so I thought. The calendar, it's going to be like you know, around the 20th of March, whatever that is. Yeah, that's cool. So an interesting question from a listener. What was your hardest obstacle, whether it was personal or business, that you had to overcome? 
Well, I think personal and private life, the reason it's called your private life and your personal life is because it's personal and private. So I don't want to go into all that sort of stuff here, but obviously I've had difficulties like everyone else does in life and some of that's personal stuff's been tough. What's the toughest thing? Oh. I don't know if shutting down the armor with six days' notice this year was probably <laughs> right up there. You know? Yeah, I thought that's what about when you're sleeping on your couch? You go, man, when I was sleeping on my couch, I didn't have a worry in the world. You know, All yeah. I do is just somehow pay the rent every month. I didn't have you know, 100 people working for me, depending on my leadership and all that sort of thing. But I don't think, like, I get what I do in my questions all the time. What's your favorite this? What's your favorite that? What's your most of the, I don't know. Because I've, I've, I've travelled a lot, I've lived a lot, I've had some great experiences, good and bad. So I, I I'm not sure what the most difficult experience is, man. I just deal with it and get up the next day and say, right, forward we go. You're like a rubber you know, band you know, that doesn't break. I don't break. What are some of the three attributes that you would consider for any leader to have and why? And maybe it could even be within yourself. So three things that you think stand out. I don't know about for, well, a leader, okay, well, I'll answer this two ways. I think for a leader, you've got to have, you've got to be fearless. You've got to have balls. Like, you know, like you've really got to, you've got to be able to um, withstand the voices. By that, I mean, if you've got a good idea or a good concept or something amazing you want to do, a lot more people are going to tell you not to do it than they're going to encourage you. So you've got to have this intestinal fortitude, I call it, like a, like a power within that says, thanks very much, but I'm going to do it anyway. So I don't know what, what's the word for that. Um, I guess you've just got to be, well, I think obsession is the most important thing. Like when I say I'm going to do something, I'm so obsessed, nothing in the world's going to stop me. So I think as a leader, you've got to, you've got to, have, you've got to be fearless. You've got, to, you've got to be strong. And that's probably the word for that middle bit. Yeah. You've got to be strong because people are going to try and talk you down. They're going to try and break you. They're going to try and explain why it's not wise to go forward. And I think that's a very, very important thing. So I think it's just all those sort of cliche words like, you know, courage and fearlessness. I I think that um, from this interview anyway, a lot of people probably got some insight into, you know, what you overcame for the Arnold and even for this year as a a business owner from the Arnold for the Doldies Gym and then even for the Pro League because you've got a few different businesses going and you've really kept it consistent with your mindset, your attitude, and you've never really given up. Uh, No, I've never quit anything in my life. Um, It's just sort of, that's sort of in your wiring or DNA, I think, because a lot of people go, oh, is that something you learn or you train for? I go, no, this is kind of madness. But uh, what, what I'd like to give you listeners is three other words. So you say as a leader, what about if you decide to me, for anyone that really just wants to go ahead, what are the three words? What are the three things they really need to get their head around? I've got those three words ready to go. Because I use this in my Relentless Momentum seminars all the time. And it's passion, vision, action. Mm. Right? Now, I'll just take you quickly through that. If you're going to be good at something, it's got to be a passion because you're going to have shitty days. That's why I'm fortunate what I do because I look forward to it every day. I love coming to the gym. I'm just like this gym rat, this guy that grew up in the gym. He gets to go to the gym every day. So it's never like, oh, shit, I've got to go to work. Oh, I've got to go to the gym. So if you want to open a business, start a new career, do something, and you don't have that passion for it, then the hard days are going to kick, going to kick, you, going to kick you in the head and you're not going to survive. You're going to think you're doing fine on, on the sunny days. You're that fair weather kind of player. Oh, yeah, I'm fine until, until I get hit. You know, no, you've got to have so much passion that you don't care how many times you get hit. The next one's vision. And you've got to, you've got to have a realistic vision. You can't be an imbecile. You can't be delusional. For example, I've used this 
Sam before, you can't say, I'm going to be going to be a car maker. I'm going to invent a new car. Well, shit. You know, there's been like one new car maker in the last 20 years ago. He's done the electric car. Yeah, and, and Tesla. What are you going to do? You're going to make a different shape wheel or, you know what I mean? Like, this is not realistic. You might be a great car modifier. You might be able to do a, a spray painting business or a pimp my ride or something. But to, you know what I mean? What I'm trying to explain is don't set a goal that's so stupid that you can't achieve it because then you're just setting yourself up for failure. So when I say vision, it's like, for example, when I had a vision to do the Arnold Sports Festival, the Arnold Classic, you know, it wasn't no way you're going to be able to do that. I'm like, well, if I put all these things in place, I'm in a winning position. So you've got to be ready for, everyone says opportunity only comes once. Maybe it comes more times, but you've got to be ready for your opportunity when it comes. Because if I had got that call from them, someone said, oh, call Tony Doherty, he'd be good at that. And I hadn't have done those three years of hard yards getting ready for it, I would have hesitated. And they would have smelt the fear and they would have said, thanks anyway, and called somebody else. Yeah. Right, so vision is that. Have this tunnel vision of where you're going and what you're doing. Even if it doesn't work out, just believe it and live it every single day. So passion, vision, and action means now. Yeah, some people say, I'm going to start my diet on Monday. I'm going to give up smokes on New Year's Day. I'm going to, you know, be a better person Wednesday week. It's not, unless you're willing to start right now, you turn this podcast off and take action on whatever you want to do, or you're kidding yourself and you're lying to you and everybody around you. You know, and I'll tell you this, I know this. There is no Monday, there's no tomorrow. That's the biggest load of horse shit in the world. You say you're going to eat clean, go home, take all the shit out of your fridge and put it in the bin. So you're going to give up smoking, put your smokes in the bin, never put another one in your mouth. That's what I mean by action. It means unstoppable, obsessive action. And, and I'll just add this story because I know a lot of people are a little lost, especially at the moment. Yeah. I get this a lot in my seminars and when I do my you know, weekly questions, not always weekly, sometimes twice a week on Instagram, Tony Doherty, Oz, if you're watching, but I'll answer anything, you know, and, and I get this one all the time from people that are a little bit lost and it's always, how do I know when I found my thing? How do I know when I found that thing in life that, that I, I really want to do that thing I'm meant to be doing on this earth? And I've got a really great answer for that. When something wakes you up in the morning, every morning, when something keeps you awake every night and you can't stop thinking about it, that's when you know you've you've found your thing. It's so easy to be obsessed when you've got that passion for something. Like, you know, and I think we all have it as kids, you know, you you can't sleep because you're dreaming about this, you know, being a a pilot or an astronaut or whatever. You wake up in the morning and you think, oh, rocket ships. You know, and it just gets beaten out of you. <clears throat> you know, my people saying, who the hell are you? Why would you be able to make it? So you've got to have this unstoppable thought process if you're going to be good at something. And I really believe in this. I think that if something keeps you awake at night, wakes you up in the morning, and you can't think about anything else and you won't stop, that's your thing. It's that simple. I wanted to you ask know, we're you... We're not here for a long time, man. Yeah. Everybody's on limited time. So... Why go through life doing something you fucking hate? Mm. And find something you love, man. Find something that just makes you tick. So I try and tell people. So you've spoken about the Arnold and how you put yourself in a key position, like being prepared for an opportunity, right? So you knew what you wanted. So Tony Doherty today, what do you want moving forward? Or what goals have you set for yourself that maybe haven't come into play that will once we move forward? I'm not a real goal setter, believe it or not. I don't like have an action plan or 
whoops, or write you know shit down on a notepad of well, what I want to do with this. Yeah. In fact, you've seen those hats I've got, which is FY five YP, which is fuck your five year plan. Yeah. The reason I always have that is people are so hooked up with this five year five years time. I want to have the house on the hill. I want to have one point two million dollars in the bank, a wife, two point four kids, and a dog. Great. And the pandemic hits. Well, there's your five year plan turned to shit, isn't it? And these same people. I mean, it's great to have this. I'm, I'm taking the piss, but yeah. The the problem with most people that lack drive and intensity and obsession, and if you want to use the word, which I had motivation, is that they can't concentrate for five freaking minutes on something or for five hours or for five days. So when I do my seminars, I always have this little segment on that. And I say, well, so I said, well, how do you, if you're having a shitty day, how do you change it? Go say, find something, turn your phone off, put it down, find something you can do for five minutes and just might change your mindset. It might be, shit, my desk is messy. I might just clean that, it'll take me five minutes. And then say, you know what? What's something I've been wanting to do for ages that I never do, I keep putting off and procrastinating. That might take five hours. You do something for five hours solid that needs to be done, that changes your whole week. Then imagine if you did five days straight where you didn't lose track of what you were doing, how far you'd be in five years' time. This is why I just try and break it down. So how about you forget about five years? You're messing up every single day and you're telling me about your five-year plan. You can't hold a relationship down for five weeks. You can't hold a job for five months. You can't, you know, concentrate for, for, for five minutes. So if we're going to use this, this analogy, I'll say, well, just break it down. So when you say, what, what we're going from here, I don't just want to be better today at what I do and come in tomorrow and be even better at it. You know, and I'm, look, I'm creating some new spaces. I'm, I'm doing some stuff I've always wanted to do with another space to do with my, um, you know, my seminars and helping people and, you know, that kind of space. I want to do a lot more with the gyms. You know, I'd love, I have these sort of dreams, Troy, but I don't put pressure on myself like you have to have 100 gyms because the timing might not be right. This is where a lot of people go wrong. They say, I'm going to have 100 restaurants or 200 gyms or, you know, a fleet of luxury cars. Eh. Then you put this pressure on yourself because you said that you kind of have to do it. You get halfway and you go, oh, that was kind of fucking dumb. I wish I had just said that. So I don't do this. Right? But what I want to do, I want to really build this brand. So I've just put these words up. It came to me when we were doing the renovation. And five days before, I had to find a sign writer to be able to create this. You did a fantastic job. But it was, welcome to the world-famous Delity's Gym. So now our new clothing range, I haven't said this anywhere else live, is the world-famous range. Mm. Because it is world-famous. So I know what my brand is. And I've said to you before over the years, I think every city in the world needs a Delity's Gym. It needs like a home away from home where you can go when you don't really fit into that, you know, Genesis Fitness First. Uh, planet fitness world you know that being have a nice day you know a lot of people are misfits and not all of our members are misfits but a lot of them are but my point being there's there's space in every city because i know when i travel and this has been the greatest thing about the arnold team is for six years man i've been in i think more than 50 countries i've seen so much of the world um being on the road you know six months of the year with arnold and his team because we always go to some cool places but I always try and find the local gym Man, I've been to big cities that don't have the local gym. Don't have that. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, I'd love to uh, take the brand further, to have one you know, maybe in each capital city, to have one in some of the, the big hotspot cities around the world so that when people land, they go, oh, is there a Doherty's gym here? You know? But that's not a have to do. That's a, 
That'd be pretty cool. That is a cool thing. Yeah. So, you know, I, I just don't get into this whole planning. And, and you know, I know you and I have talked about over the years about making plans and having goals and all that sort of thing. I just try and pack as much as I can into every single day. I like to get up as early as I can and I like to go to bed absolutely exhausted. And I reckon if you just keep doing that, like honestly doing that, you know, you get a lot of time to, to be planning while you're chipping away at it. So, uh, yeah, oh, I like that. It's I went- crazy ass answer, isn't it? <laughs> you know what? It's a real and it's an authentic answer. And sometimes people do plan and talk about planning and take no action. They're all about procrastination. You've obviously been successful in your, in your approach. You, you've taken action. And taking action is something you've always pushed forward. Taking action in your business, taking action in your career as a bodybuilding promoter. Yeah, yeah, that's it. People, yeah, everyone's got a different way of doing things. Some people like to read and study. Some people like to, you know, whatever. It's like people, people like to jog. I don't get it. I hate running. I can't think of anything worse. But for some people, that's their spiritual place. Okay, whatever works. So I'm not going to tell anyone how to live their life. I'm going to tell you, don't die with regret. You know, don't, yeah. don't, don't be wishing you had to tried harder or wishing you had to, you know, followed up on some shit you wanted to do. So I know we're probably running out of time and I just wanted to ask you a few quick listener questions. So okay. what are three of the things that you think you need to stand out as any competitor in any category? Obviously, the, the most important thing is condition. Because you can have the best genetics, the best shape in the world, but if it wobbles and you're fat, no one's going to see it, see it underneath. So people say, what's the most important thing? It's condition. Because if you get two massive guys, all right, both 110 kilograms at five foot eight, and they both got great genetics, small waist, wide shoulders, who wins? The hardest one does. The one with condition. You know, I think um, that's the number one thing. You know, I think... The, the next thing I'd say would be confidence, being able to present yourself, practice your posing, not just hitting your shots, you know, but how you look, how to command a presence on a stage. And I think Arnold was the greatest example of that. He was so cocky and so confident on stage that he would put everyone off because he knew his body and his posing and the art of bodybuilding so well. You know, my great mate Chris Cormier is probably the best posing coach I've seen. And he doesn't teach people how to hit shots. He teaches them how to do transitions, how to hold your face and where your jaw should be and how you should look, you know, this kind of thing. So I think presentation is very, very important. Not just knowing how to do a lat spread, knowing how you look when you're not doing a lat spread, knowing how to stand so you look like you're relaxed when you're not, where you're flexing the whole time. Being able to hold your poses for 30 seconds at a time instead of this, (laughs) you know, no one wants to see that, you know, to put some work into that sort of thing. So I think they're the two most important things. You know, the third one, I guess, I think it's those two, but I think the third one would be just balance, you know, to work, work on your weak body parts. Someone said that to me when I was a young bodybuilder because I thought, you know, my arms, because I always had sort of big delts and chest and back. And I remember one of my early training partners said, man, you should train arms like three times a week because you, the rest of your body is going to overpower them if you don't. And then to train the outer your forearms and your calves so that you always have that kind of symmetry. So I think they'd be the three things. And that's not a prepared answer. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely not. So all, all these questions are just sort of on the spot. So tattoos, really what do you think about tattoos in any ladies category specifically? For men, probably it doesn't matter so much. But what is your opinion on, on the female categories? Uh, look, I think that the world's changed a lot. Like, I didn't get tattoos when I was younger. I was obsessed with tattoos all my life, but I didn't get them when I was bodybuilding because 
they'd mark you down for that, you know. And now there's such great products with makeup and tanning, you can cover them up. So it doesn't really matter. Like if you, like do your homework and make sure, like if your whole body's completely covered, you know, from, from here to your feet, obviously that's probably not going to show off, you know, some of your lines and definition straight. But talking about just a few tattoos, like a lot of girls have got them on their arms or their thigh or yeah. the, the rib cage or whatever. I don't think it matters at all. Yeah. I think that, you know, don't go too far. Don't go tattooing all over your face, you know, because you're never going to get any work or sponsorship and this sort of thing. But for the most part, uh, I think that, you know, I know with our pro town team, for example, they, they can almost eliminate uh, they the do little tattoos. They do a and great job. Better and better and better. So um, I'd say don't, don't spoil it. Do you. If it makes you happy, get some yep. tattoos. Yeah, so absolutely. And uh, this was a figure competitor who asked the question and I thought, who is the successful competitor that has tattoos? And I think Shanique Grant has a few tattoos, doesn't she? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, and like she's reigning Miss Physique Olympia champion, so can't go wrong there. So so you did touch on this earlier, but a listener question. So what are some advice for Aussie pros that you can give competing during COVID time? So some of them might have ambition to compete overseas. So what would you say to them? Look, I'd say we're all in the same situation. No one knows what's really going to happen, but be prepared. You know, get ready for your opportunity because imagine all the borders. All right, imagine this. You go, oh, I'm not going to be able to train. I'm going to be able to do my pro debut. I'm not going to be able to do that show in Miami or Japan or whatever I want to do late this year, early next year. So I'll just kind of coast along. So you start eating cakes and donuts and, you know, having that one too many cheat meals, which, which, which I, you know, don't get me started on that. If you're a professional athlete, make sure you look like one 90% of the time. I always say to people that, and you know, I, I used to do a lot of coaching, Troy, I don't do it now, but I'd always say to anyone I was helping, never be more than, if you're a pro, never be more than six weeks out of contest shape or you don't have the mindset of the champion. So I'd say that to the Australian girls is, okay, you get, if, if you just get complacent now and go, oh, this is just too hard, I don't know what's around the corner, then you're just, you're just going to get left behind. Because imagine, imagine you wanted to do, what's the show in November, the Japan Pro, for example. And it looks like we can't go to Japan. Then mid-October, they go, okay, Australians, you can go to Japan. And you go, oh, it's too late. I can never make it. Well, that's on you. So don't use this for an excuse. Like a lot of people through the COVID thing sat home and said, oh, well, you know, I've got to be at home and there's not really anything for me to do. So my attitude with, with what I did at the gym, you know, I came in here for 91 days straight. Every single day. I didn't miss one. That's amazing because I would have got left behind. So think about that when you think about your bodybuilding career. You know, they could have said, okay, now you can't open again. I wouldn't have regretted one day. You'll never regret a workout. You'll never regret feeling good about yourself. You know what all you'll do is get out of shape and hate yourself and then you lose your self-confidence and then you won't put everything into your next preparation. So, you know, harden up, take your medicine and just, you know, just realize we're all going through something don't don't just be the weakest person there because you're just life will just go by. Yeah. If you could predict maybe your first Australian bikini pro to go to the Olympia stage, who would it be and why? You know what? I won't answer that one because yeah. you know I think anyone that's won their pro card in Australia, say ninety percent, have got great potential. Yeah, they do. You know, and you really don't know. And I say this to all my guys as well. Um, that you don't know what you've got until you stand up against the best in the world. And you might look amazing winning a pro card in Australia or whatever. And you've seen when we've had the Arnold, a couple of the Australian girls have placed 
you know, really, really well. Who was the one that plays really well two years ago? Was it Ness? Ness Herrera, fourth at the Arnold Australia. Fourth yeah. at the Arnold, there you go. That's, no one saw that, that coming. And, and she beat some really good girls. So she'd have to be up there. Yeah. You know, I think, yeah, look, I, I won't because, you know, I, I know them all, I believe in them all, and they've all got a chance to, to have a go at greatness. I'd say let's put that um, Bikini Pro on in October and see who wins. They get the invite to the Olympia and then we'll oh, have a chat about it. I know, right? I think you, you know, it's funny because I've looked at it and I've looked at it on paper and there's, I won't name them, but there's at least five girls that I can think of that are in that mix that can really push it at that pro show. And yes, I, I, I thought of five or six when you asked me that question, but I don't think it's fair. Yeah, of course. What if I get it right? Then we go, oh, yeah, that was rigged. You said that on Troy's podcast. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Let's so, be careful about where do you see Australian bodybuilding in 10 years' time? And when I say Australian bodybuilding, I mean the, the pro league specifically. Uh, look, previous to this, man, we were growing so fast, not just here, but worldwide. The pro league exploded pre-COVID. You know, we were just out of control. Um, I think it will continue to grow. I think with the right leadership, and obviously in 10 years, shit, I'll, I'll be even older. Oh, that's depressing. But uh, look, I think if we just all keep working together and, and promote it for what it is, you know, obviously with the new categories we've got now, there's something for everyone. I think health and fitness, that was one of my questions today, where do you think the, the gym and the fitness industry will be in 10 years? I think it will continue to grow and be more popular, you know, because people want to be in shape. They want to live longer. They want to have, um, you know, uh, good health and, and be attractive and all this kind of thing. So it's, it's hard, man, 10 years, it's hard to say because 10 years ago, I didn't, I wanted it to be where it's at now, but I didn't know if I'd get a chance to do what we've been able to do. Yeah. So if everything continues on the trajectory we're at, at least it's trying to be double what we're doing now. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to agree. And I think social media plays a big role in that as well because more yeah. people are getting access to, oh, this is how you train glutes, or this is how you train back, this is how Absolutely. you train chest. You know, people often talk about all the shit things about the internet, but it's made the world a really small place. It's brought us all really close together. We can find out anything about anything. You know, I say to my kids, you know, like, once you used to have to go to a library to find something out, now you just go, hey, Siri, you know, and you ask them something to your phone, you haven't got to type it in, and you've got access to every library in the world. It's crazy. Yeah, fascinating. So one thing that I really loved about the Pro League when it did come out is that you allowed any competitors from any federation like ICN, WBFF, NABA, and even IFB Elite to come and freely compete with the Pro League, like a back and forth type of thing. So that's probably one of the coolest things that I've seen you do for the, all competitors out there because bodybuilding is for everyone. What do you think are some of the cool things that maybe WBFF does, for example? I don't know, man. I've never been to one of their shows. I don't focus on them at all. You know, it's like when you ask me about other gyms or other businesses or other federations, I really, I don't focus on them. I don't watch them. What I do, I sit down in a very close group with some of the people that, you know, very high up in the sport and people like, you know, Jim Mannion and, particularly Jim Manning, who I'm very close with, but it might be Robin Chang or Dan Solomon or, you know, these guys that run the sport. And we have these think tanks and all this. And when the whole split was happening, it was one thing I remember discussing with, with Jim and also with Arnold. He couldn't believe, he didn't know that amateurs couldn't go between one federation or the other or that the old IFB wouldn't allow someone, for example, that won the NABBY universe then to go and do their show and then to go back again. So to me, that was one of the coolest things that we discussed. And from day one, when Jim and I were involved in the planning of this, um, you know, that was one thing that was going to be one of the first things we did. Just say, well, who cares? If you're an amateur, do whatever you want. 
But then when you turn pro, then you're with us or you're not. And I think, I, I agree with him. Arrogance is cool as hell. Like, example, Jake Nicolopoulos, who won his pro card at the Arnold last year. He'd been a NABBA champ. He'd been a NABBA guy. I've been trying to get him to come across for years, but it would have meant he'd have to leave that behind. So when we got the pro league, I go, now Jake, you can go do that, come back and do this. Just see what works for you, you know, and look at him now. So to me, Troy, it's been one of the biggest steps forward. It's a hobby, man. You're an amateur. You should be able to do whatever the hell you want. And with the old regard, it was something I always really hated, but, you know, I wasn't, wasn't in charge. So now I'm large and in charge and you can do whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the Tony today, right? If you could go back to and talk to your 20-year-old self, what advice would you give? Um, if you go back through my Instagram, I've written a really cool piece on that a couple of times. I'd have to dig it up and find it. But, you know, probably I think oh, something like, you know, just be patient, you know, see the good in people. Don't get caught up in negative stuff. Believe in yourself. Don't quit. Just that kind of stuff. You know, I'll, I'll find it. I'll dig it out and post it up again because it was on my questions today. And uh, every I should put it in notes or something because it's, it might be in there. Just, hang on, have a quick look. Yeah, we can probably find it. I'll just type in a keyword like younger self. Because it's actually it's a common question that we get. And Dude, I found it. Oh, there you go. Boom. What do we got? All right, this is legit. Don't listen to people that don't understand your chosen direction. Most of these people will be stuck where they are and will live with regret. Don't be afraid to fail. Whether it's a best lift, a job, a relationship, or a dream, failure teaches us what we need to push forward. Success is just failure turned inside out. Dream bigger, because if you dream small, that's what you'll get. Don't rely on anyone else for your happiness or self-worth. People and circumstances change. Keep seeing the good in people. It will always, always outweigh the bad. Don't ever do anything to prove someone wrong. Do it all to prove yourself right. Train yourself to sleep less and live more. Life's short. Don't waste a moment. Be genuinely curious. Make friends wherever you travel. Have many layers and reveal your layers slowly, only as you learn to trust people. Never hesitate to help others and to share your knowledge. This cannot be quantified, but always comes back 10 times over. Realise that everything happens for a reason. It will all reveal itself later. Strive to be happy. Life is an amazing ride. You are stronger than you know. Don't worry, kid. Everything will turn out all right. Wow. That's, uh, that's some deep, deep, deep stuff, Tony. Thanks, man. Just, wow. It's difficult to add to that, but going back to when, you know, you mentioned about Paul Graham giving you an opportunity as a young kid to start promoting, and many people may not know this, I was fortunate enough to work for you in the Arnold office, and you really gave me an opportunity and to be fair, not a lot of people probably would have. And really, you're a person who lives by the message of giving people opportunities. And I just really wanted to say thank you for giving me that opportunity, Tony. And I'm here today probably because of you. And I'm very grateful for that. So thank you, Tony. Uh, thanks, man. I, know. I always, always saw a, 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 great, uh, a great potential in you, Troy. I really did. And I still do. You know, and I think... Uh, you know, um, you've got enough fight in you and you've got enough desire to do whatever you want, man. So I can't do anything but to wish you all the best. Legend. So I think that will probably wrap up this episode. Um, yeah, I think that's about it, man. I'll finish off with that 
good quote to the younger self. I don't think we can get a better. It, it's not going to. It's not going to get any better than that. So I think probably most people would follow you, but for the people that don't follow you, what's your Instagram handle? It's Tony Doherty Oz, like O Z. Great. That's so it. thanks for coming. Facebook too, but just Instagram's cool for me. Yeah, in, Instagram, yeah, everyone's on Instagram these days. But I really appreciate your time and coming on because I know you're a very busy man and. Um, a lot of the listeners are going to love this episode, not just from hearing from you, but just the insight that you've given and the confidence moving forward as a leader and obviously the direction of the Pro League in Season B and beyond. Well, thanks for having me on, man. It's good, too, that we got to talk about life and not just competitions. I hope that somebody out there can maybe just take some of those words and, and just to back themselves and just to you know, have a better life because they're going to listen to us guys, you know, trying to inspire them. So everyone out there, you know, keep pushing, keep believing. And, uh, and don't ever hesitate if you come into the gym or you see me anywhere, just come up and say hi. You know, I love meeting you all. That's awesome. So that's another episode done. If you have any questions about this podcast, please feel free to send me a DM on Instagram. For those who follow me, it's at Troy Jane Thornton. If you like this podcast, please share it. And for the people out there that have any topics or questions on future episodes, you want any future guests, please let me know. I'm always interested to get some guests on the show. Until next time, thank you for listening. Peace.